We are going chapter by chapter through the New Testament in the Sunday night services that I have opportunity to minister to you. And we have been having a wonderful time examining these chapters from Paul's letter to the Corinthian believers. There is a great deal of meat in these chapters, and we appreciate the opportunity of sharing them with you. Paul calls his boasting in this chapter a boasting that is necessary. And I have called his boasting a spiritual sarcasm that sometimes is necessary to communicate to bodies of people truth. And I believe as we move through this three-point outline, you will see why we call this what we call it, Paul's spiritual sarcasm, Paul's boasting. In the 17th verse, he says about his boasting, this is not after the Lord. In other words, he's saying, I am really not so sure that God is in this, but I'm going to do it anyway. And I think any man of God who has to minister to people and guide people can understand what Paul is saying in that 17th verse. I speak it not after the Lord, but as it were foolishly in this confidence of boasting. There are problems that arise in a congregation like this, in a congregation like Corinth. Problems that irritate the man of God. They just downright dig at your spirit. They upset you until the man of God says, what in the world is wrong with these people? Can't they understand? Don't they see? And I believe it is in that kind of background that Paul writes this chapter. And his spirit is so worked up over what he saw in them or what he didn't see in them that he had to say, I don't think this is really of the Lord, but I'm going to say it anyway. And he called it his boasting, his spiritual sarcasm. I can relate to him very well in this instance. So, if you will give me the right tonight to just kind of boast along with the Apostle Paul, I think when we get through, you will feel good about what we have shared from this great chapter. He boasts about three matters. Number one, you'll see it there before you, his jealousy over the church. Now, there is a vast difference between jealousy and envy, and let me explain it to you very, very quickly. Envy is of the flesh, and it's selfish. It's to heap benefit upon oneself. And it is a deadly, deadly evil, as the Scripture points out. But jealousy, on the other hand, is based on love. And I could explain it best this way. I am very jealous of my wife. 
If I was not jealous of my wife, I wouldn't be much of a husband. I am so jealous of her that if anybody trying to lay their hand on her in an evil way, I would knock them for a loop. <laughs> I am jealous over her, and if I wasn't, I wouldn't be right. Jealousy, in the sense that is used here in the scripture, is based on love. And it seeks the welfare of others. So when Paul says, I'm very jealous of you, he's not envying what they have. He is saying, I love you so much that I would die for you. I would fight for you. I love you like that. And in this passage, you see, the whole thing has to do with his feeling about the church. He's jealous over the church. I want to suggest to all of you here tonight that if you don't feel that about the church, then there's something wrong. We ought to be jealous over the church with such a love that if anybody tampers with the church, we'd knock them silly. That's the tremendous value of the local church because wolves cannot enter into the sheepfold where there is a jealousy like this jealousy because those who feel that and want to protect the church and love the church would never allow it to happen. That's why it's important to link yourself with the local church. If you're a wanderer, I have pity on you tonight. If you just open the newspaper and look for the ads and say, well, I think I'll go there. That looks to be the most exciting. Or I will think I'll go over here this time. And you never put your roots down. And you never get established in the church. You never get established with other believers. You never link up in a jealous way with a body like this or other bodies. Then you are to be pitied because that's not the way God intended it to be. There has to be that sense of need and that sense of responding to need. And that is exactly what Paul is doing. He's jealous over the church. He compares the local church to a bride, just as in Ephesians, the fifth chapter. The analogy of Paul in this passage is very easy to see, as I've already explained in my jealousy for my wife. The church is the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ, and anyone who is a part of that body ought to have that feeling of urgency and love and awe over the church. I have that feeling when I walk into an empty building that's called a church. There's just something that sweeps over me as I consider what happens in that building. It's where the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, meets together and worships together and prays together and sings together, cries together, laughs together. It's the most significant place in the community, bar none. And Paul somehow had fallen so in love with the church that he says, I have a godly jealousy over you. I don't want anything to happen to you that will hurt you. So I have to write like this. 
And so I have to preach like this. If there are false gods, we have to expose those gods. If there are false prophets, we have to expose those prophets. How could the bride be seduced? How could the bride be pulled away from Christ? Well, by Satan's false teachers, according to verse 3, I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ, which means the single-heartedness. In other words, you have one lover. You have one Lord. You have one person who is the image of God, and that's Jesus Christ. And he feared lest they be seduced from that relationship. And down in verses 13, along in there to 15, he talks about Satan transformed into an angel of light. You see, there are seducers that come to you on cassette tapes. There are seducers that come to you on the television screen and over the radio set. You have to have a spiritual antenna in order to be protected from those seducers who will pull you away from Christ, the bridegroom. So God has given you the church. Do you have a godly jealousy over that church? Do you have a feeling of urgency over the church? There are wolves in sheep's clothing out there. How did Satan deceive Eve in Genesis 3? He came as a serpent, but if you'll read the context of Scripture closely, you will understand that that serpent was very beautiful. It wasn't in the form that you think of a serpent today. That serpent was very beautiful and subtle like no other in the field. And through that subtlety and through that beauty and as an angel of light, Satan came and beguiled Eve. How does he come today? Same way. Pulling people away from simplicity, from that single-heartedness. Your heart doesn't beat for the church and the gospel like it once did. Criticism sets in. That's usually the first thing that seduces us away from Christ and that jealousy that Paul is referring to. Criticism. I wouldn't do it that way. Why is it done this way? What's the matter with this? I don't like that. We need to be careful that the enemy who came to Eve and the enemy that was coming to some of these Corinthians does not in this great hour of the church just before our Lord returns pull us away and seduce us away from that relationship that God wants us to have in the body of Christ. I don't know if you've ever heard the story of this small gathering of people where there was a great orator, and because of his fame, they asked him to speak. And so he stood with his great oratorical ability, and he recited the 23rd Psalm beautifully and powerfully. 
and he sat down. And then in that group was a simple man who had been a part of the church, the body of Christ for a long time. He asked permission to speak, and he too recited the 23rd Psalm. And when he finished, there were tears in the eyes of people, and the man who had recited it first, the great orator, turned to him, and he said, Friend, I know the psalm, but you know the shepherd. What is Paul saying in these first six verses? You have to know the real Christ. You have to stay linked to the real Christ. You dare not be pulled away from the real Christ. And I am going to be sure, even if I have to die for you, that you will not be pulled away by false Christs and false teachers and high-sounding things. I have a jealousy over you. And I warn you by day and I warn you by night. The only defense against spiritual adultery in the Bible is faithfulness to the very word that is written. The only way you're going to be protected from spiritual adultery and unfaithfulness is to be linked with this book and not depart therefrom. And Paul was trying to draw them back into the powerful simplicity of the word. It's one thing to quote the 23rd Psalm. It's another thing to know the shepherd of that Psalm. Are you linked with him? The name of Idi Amin registers evil and carnage with most of us. In my reading, I came across a four point test that was a part of the Ugandan church prior to Idi Amin. And it stirred my spirit because it was a test that the church used for every believer in it to test his Christianity. And I want to share that test with you under this first point, Paul's jealousy over the church. The first test that the Ugandans used with themselves was this. Do you know salvation through the cross of Christ? Do you know the Christ of the cross? Or have you tried to come in through some other door? Do you know salvation through the Christ of the cross? Secondly, are you growing in the power of the Holy Spirit in prayer, meditation, and the knowledge of God. Boy, that's enough to stop a good many of us without even going to three or four. Are you growing in the power of the Holy Spirit in prayer, meditation, and the knowledge of God? Are you growing? Are you? How could these believers ever withstand the force of an Idi Amin unless they could say yes to these tests? 
Thirdly, is there a great desire to spread the kingdom of God by example, by preaching, and by teaching? Now, notice the first part of that sentence. Is there a great desire? That was Paul's jealousy. A great desire that the gospel he knew to be real and true would be spread by these believers, not to be adulterated by them, but spread by them. And that's what haunts most preachers when they look out and see the powerful force that is in front of them in a meeting like this and the tremendous opportunities of a world out there, and yet the majority between now and the next gathering will not say anything to anyone about Jesus and the gospel. They will be silent when there is such hunger and thirst and need out there. God isn't asking us to be an evangelist. God isn't necessarily asking us to be some professional religious person. He's just asking us to share his love. He's just asking us to smile and when the opportunity comes and the door opens to talk about what Jesus has done for us instead of the weather. And one of the tests for the Ugandan believers was is there a great desire to spread the kingdom of God through example, preaching, and teaching? How would you stack up with that so far? Fourth one was, are you bringing others to Christ by individual searching, by visiting, and by public witness? In other words, deliberately endeavoring to infect people with this message. Now, if we were to follow that four-point test of the Ugandans, do you know what would happen to the church? Instead of it being a masquerade, there would come a reality into the family of God like we've never known before. So often we are like Halloween in our Christian experience. We put on a mask when we come in here, and we want that to be something very presentable, and when we leave here, we take it off, and we're another person altogether. Paul writes to these believers to get them to a single-heartedness, and if anybody comes preaching another Jesus whom we have not preached, to turn away to have such a faith and such a jealousy over the church that they could never, never, never be tricked and never be fooled, never be beguiled like Eve in the garden was beguiled. How jealous we should be over the church for which Christ died and over the gospel that he has given to us so freely. You know the shepherd. Secondly, he boasts over his generosity to the church, and we don't need to spend a lot of time in this section, verses 7 to 21. The argument that was present in the church was that Paul couldn't be very spiritual because he wouldn't accept money for his services. You see, the way they were interpreting it was that he wasn't an honest man. 
This good man's generosity was being judged and his motives were being questioned by the people that should have loved him and should have believed in him the most. So in verse 7, he uses a bit of irony of his own. Have I committed an offense in abasing myself? Have I done something wrong by insisting that wherever I go, I work with my hands and support myself? But you say, Pastor, he talks about receiving offerings from Philippi. Yes, he did, but never when he was in Philippi. Paul never accepted offerings from the church when he was with the church. He would only accept them when he was gone from the church because when he was with the church, he never wanted to be pointed at. He never wanted to be found in their eyes as trying to profit from the gospel that he was preaching. So he never took a dime from any church while he was with that church. And they were taking this very notable and very significant aspect of his character were pulling him down into the gutter with it. So he has to boast a little bit. He gets sarcastic and talks about his generosity to the church. He allowed the church at Philippi to send him support. Yes, he needed it. But he would never, never with them, while with them, be accused by them. So he made his own way. He made tents. He got blisters. He sacrificed in order that they might have the light and the life that Christ had available for them. So he has to get very bold, and by the time you come to the 13th, 14th verses, he accuses some of them of being children of the devil. That's pretty strong, isn't it, for the Sunday morning crowd, for the Sunday evening crowd? Such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. No marvel, Satan himself is that way. It's no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness. You see how he tries to get at the heart of this matter? whose end shall be according to their works. Let no man think of me a fool, if otherwise yet as a fool receive me, that I may boast myself a little. That which I speak, I speak it not after the Lord. He just got very hard with them at this point. And he says, open your eyes. Open your heart. Don't be carnal. Don't be fleshly. Understand that I have given you not only my ministry, but I've given you my very life. I have guarded you. I have guided you. I have invested in you. And now I'm going to boast of it. I have been generous with you. And if you want to listen to these servants of the devil, I don't understand you because they haven't given anything of themselves to you. I have given you my very life. Yet some of you do not understand. Verse 20 is a description of a very carnal ministry. For ye suffer if a man bring you into bondage, if a man devour you, if a man take of you, if a man exalt himself, if a man smite you on the face. What is he saying? That's what some of these have done. 
Is that the minister of Christ who would do those things, devour you, take of you, exalt himself, hit you in the face if you don't do what he wants you to do? Is that the shepherd of the church? Open your eyes, he says, in essence, in his sarcasm, and understand that I've never done any of that. All I've done is give and give and give again. But you might know this blessed Jesus that revealed himself to me. I want you to know what a privilege it is to be a minister of the gospel. I want you to know what a privilege it is to be able to give and give and give again. There's nothing like it in all the world. And if all of you put together wanted to bestow upon me gifts of appreciation and gratitude, for the ministry that is given from this pulpit and from this church on a day-by-day -day basis, I want you to know you could never, you could never give enough to satisfy what satisfaction comes when we are privileged to see what we witnessed this morning and again tonight in that baptismal tank when people with tears streaming down their faces say, I want to be right with God. I want to know Jesus. And when you hear some of the testimonies that you're going to hear from this platform on Thanksgiving morning of a couple who walked down the aisle of this church before the service even began one Sunday recently with tears streaming down their cheeks not knowing why, just feeling God in this place and sat near the front and when we had the early prayer time at the first part of the service, he nudges his wife and says, I've got to go down there. And she says, you're not going without me. And she jumps up to her feet and gives their life to Christ when nobody had said anything about giving their life to Christ, only offering prayer at the altar. They're changed people today. I'll tell you, there's no gift in the world that can match that. So don't think you can ever do it. And the true preacher of the gospel will never be bought. He will never be purchased. He will always be free to preach his heart and declare the truth as he understands it by the revelation of God's Word. That's why I love Paul. He didn't care what they thought. He knew what they needed. And he preached it with boldness and said, you need to understand how generous I've been with you. You understand that? Good. I wondered for a moment. Number three, he boasts about his sufferings for the church. This is an incredible passage. It goes from verse 22 on through the end of the chapter. These are his credentials. They're his scars. What do these other ministers have? Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. And then he goes on, and it's the only time he ever did this. He just waxes eloquent about the things he went through. When you come to the 20th chapter of the book of Acts, 
this passage of Scripture had already been written by the Apostle Paul. So Acts barely skims the surface of what happened in this man's life in terms of his scars. Just touches the surface. You need to really evaluate before the Lord what Paul is saying here about his credentials for ministry. The Roman way of punishment was 40 stripes. Did you know it wasn't really 39, it was 40? The reason it always ended up 39 was this, that the person inflicting the stripes, if he inflicted more than 40, he himself would be given those stripes. There was a judgment upon the inflictor of the stripes if he went beyond the 40 that Roman law dictated. So they always stopped at 39 so as never to subject themselves to that punishment. And you've heard people tell about those Roman whips and the glass and the, the rock that was embedded in those whips that ripped the back of the victim. And he says, five times, five times I received those 39 lashes. If you're good at multiplication, just multiply that, will you? Five times 39. And if I understand the life of the Apostle Paul, with every one of them, he said, Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. I am humbled to be counted worthy to suffer for your sake, Lord. Three times he was beaten with rods. Do you know what those rods were? The rod that they used to beat Jesus? It was a cane. It was a hard piece of wood that they would take off of one of the trees in that part of the world. Very hard wood. Those, those were rods. And three times I have been beaten with rods. It's, it would be like a baseball bat in terms of its hardness and its intensity. Then he was... One night and a day in the deep. That means he was out in the sea trying to save himself. Shipwrecks often. Stripes above measure. Prisons more frequent. And then he said, once I was left for dead by rocks. And I really think he was dead. He talked about going into the third heaven and seeing things he couldn't even describe when he came back. The people of God gathered around him after his tormentors left and they prayed and he came back to life, healed, and went on his way. But he went through that. Journeyings often, perils of waters, perils of robbers, perils, 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 perils. But then he adds one thing, and it's easy to miss unless you're a preacher. He said, above all of this, the care of the churches. 
Sometimes the physical abuse you can take and you can, it's tangible. But the emotional and the spiritual punishment that the man of God goes through because of his desire to minister and to help people and to lift people is a burden that's far greater than the lashes or the imprisonments or the shipwrecks. The care of all the churches. Do you think he qualifies for an apostle? He does not boast of his strengths. He boasts of his weaknesses. Who is weak and I'm not weak? Who is offended and I burn not? If I must needs glory, I will glory of the things which concern mine infirmities. And I declare it's the thing we gripe about the most. It's the thing we complain about the most, our infirmities, our weaknesses. When Paul turned them into blessings and said, these are the things that I'm going to boast in. I think his attitude ought to be on the heart of every one of us. If we are to be a true disciple of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then finally, he talks about being let down over the wall at Damascus in a basket. He humbled himself because he was a rabbi. He was a very holy man in the sight of the world. But he humbled himself, got in that basket, was let down over the wall in a basket. I mean, none of these other fellows that he refers to would have allowed that to happen. They were too proud but not Paul. And he uses that in the last verse as a sign to these believers of his credentials. I've humbled myself. I have served you. I've given my strength. I've given my life. I've given my money. I've given my whole being to minister to you, and now you're running around clinging to these other apostles and these other disciples and these other ministers. Who are they? Are they ministers of Christ? No. They are the leeches that see a good thing going, and they want to get a hold of it and profit from it, but not so Paul. I will be a servant. It's not how much can I get, but it's how much can I give. And it's true for any of us who want to follow Jesus Christ and to be an example in this world. It's not how much can we get out of this church. It's not how much can we get out of this ministry. It's not how much I can get out of my brother and my sister. It's how much can I give to this church and how much can I give to Christ and how much can I give to my brother and my sister in order that they might be well, that they might be whole, that they might be blessed. This is Paul's spiritual sarcasm, his boasting, if you will, in the Lord. How close are you walking tonight? you have that godly jealousy? Do you have that sense of I have given and I have given and I have given again and by God's grace I'm going to keep giving? Do you have that sense of suffering for Jesus' sake 
Or has it been one big gimme, gimme, gimme? If so, it's time for us to turn around and take a look at it from the other side. This one chapter, Paul gives us the opportunity to do that when he just kind of unburdens his heart and lets us take a peek inside this great apostle of our Lord Jesus Christ. I never questioned this book, but I think I would question just a little bit, verse 17, when he says, I don't really think this is of the Lord, this is just Paul talking. Because when I get down to the end of the chapter, man, I, I feel like Paul. Paul, it was the Lord. You helped me by opening your heart and letting us look inside. I hope you feel like you've been helped and that the Lord was able to give you a little glimpse into what it means to be a disciple and a follower and not just one who sponges everything in and never gives anything out, that others may be blessed and the kingdom may be advanced. Dear God, take these words and these thoughts and plant them in our hearts by the power of your Spirit. For we are living in a generation when people all around us are wanting and wanting and wanting. And they're reaching and reaching and reaching. And they're grasping and grasping and grasping. But as we look into the life and heart of your great apostle, it seems that we ought to be giving and giving and giving again. May we catch his spirit and may we start rejoicing even in our sufferings and in our infirmities and may we somehow develop that godly jealousy for the church and for one another that he had for the church. May we somehow capture his spirit of not wanting to get, but only wanting to give. Thank you, Jesus, for that opportunity. For we ask it in your holy name. Amen. Let us stand together, please.